is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu, it's a landmark case, a settlement between some of the families of the victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting and the company, Remington, that made the gun used. We'll go in-depth. Another major lawsuit settled today. Britain's Prince Andrew settles for an undisclosed sum with a woman who accused him of sexual abuse. Now, this is connected to the late Jeffrey Epstein. And strong talk this afternoon from President Biden as Russia might be backing away from an invasion of Ukraine. Avocados could get more expensive soon. They've stopped coming in from Mexico, at least for now. We'll explain. The indoor mask mandate in the state ends tomorrow, except in L.A. and except in Santa Clara counties. Disneyland ditching its masks. Is it too soon? Alec Baldwin named in a wrongful death lawsuit in the Rust shooting case. And the Oscars have a new host. Actually, they've got three of them. We'll look into whether that trio can boost the sagging ratings. Triple vision. That's right. See three people. Remember, remember the TVs when it did picture in picture and that yeah. was the new big thing? Yeah. I remember my dad got that. I was like, wow, look at this. So this is now the next new big yes. thing. Yeah. Okay, we start, though, with the Sandy Hook lawsuit settlement. Gabriel Sepulveda Sanchez is a legal analyst, personal injury attorney here in Los Angeles. Thanks for being with us. This is pretty significant. And one wonders, and maybe you can tell the audience why. This hasn't happened before families, victims of gun shootings successfully having a case against uh, a manufacturer of a weapon. It, it, it comes down to precedent, and you have to think that if, if everyone was to, for every crime of violence where a firearm is used, if everyone can just sue gun manufacturers, what would happen? And the, the, the policy, no one wants that. No one wants, the not everyone, but for the most part, um, the reason that wouldn't be a reasonable thing to do to hold a gun company responsible for every crime of violence used by you know with a, a weapon. So they enacted a law to protect that. Anytime you try to sue a third party, um, they call these third party criminal act cases. Whenever you're trying to blame a criminal act on someone else or some corporation that didn't commit the criminal act per se, it's it's very it's a very hard thing to do no matter what. And the really cool, the really creative, and, and um, I have to tip my hat to these lawyers and, and masterminding this theory is that they can't blame Remington for pulling the trigger and, and killing um, you know, 20 children in the, in the Sandy Hook incident. But what they can do and what they did, which was brilliant, was they argued that their advertising encouraged and was leading and, and inspired young people or you know, this, this individual to commit this crime and what you really have to think about is okay they 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 what 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 kind of evidence do they find in the marking materials the depositions that were taking the documents that's going to be the really interesting thing which when that becomes public is what exactly did they find were these guys having meetings and, and really thinking about plotting to have younger males american males to purchase these types of weapons and if they can and I, i'm assuming they had some really damaging evidence when they took those depositions, maybe there was a, a real marketing plan to like target young men um, uh, to purchase these weapons. And, and uh, the way they crafted the lawsuit and um, pretty much came up with a theory that this, this marketing plan encouraged the perpetrator to purchase this weapon and, and encourage and, and 
glamorize killing other human beings. Yeah, well, well, some of what we have seen and, and what we've talked about before is, you know, some of these ads, they did target younger uh, males. They put them in video games. One of the ads that we talked about on the show before was was the, the phrase, you know, consider your man card reissued. So that was kind of the campaign. So if that is the backdrop for this case, is this a roadmap for other companies if they, you know, marketed in the same way? Anyone, if you're a smart CEO, anyone that is in the gun business will reconsider their marketing plans. And this is precedent, even though it hasn't happened in California or other states yet. Um, there are similar laws in other states that prohibit these types of um, marketing campaigns or anything that's called deceptive advertising or marketing criminal activity. They're gonna, people are gonna start. Gun manufacturers are gonna start rethinking their marketing plans, and they're thinking about it right now. So that's that's what's definitely happening. If you're not thinking about revising your marketing plan with this case, you're going to be in for a bad surprise if something else happens in the future. Can this open up, though, a, a can of worms that might be, uh, in the long run, more pernicious? Uh, and by that, I'm thinking, for example, could somebody perhaps use this as a precedent and say, I don't know, a movie company that has a movie that they claim is geared toward, you had mentioned before, young men, so let's stick with that, young men, and perhaps, uh, you know, the movie encouraged somebody to commit a violent act, and therefore the movie company should be liable. Could this case somehow morph into that kind of case? It depends, you know, it depends on what, it really comes down to, the lawyers really did their research and really were creative about using that law. Um, that that So that those type, the law that was used had to do with, specific advertising methods. And now movies arguably do not fall into that category. You know, that's going to be really tough in my opinion to, to blame every movie on every buy a movie on the, on the, on the criminal act. But I mean, it, it just really depends on what laws are in your state. Um, and I think what they did is they really use this marketing, this, uh, misleading or deceptive marketing uh, statute in Connecticut to leverage this case. Um, it doesn't mean that they would successfully win a trial but what i'm really curious about is if they're willing to settle this case if they got past the, the motions needed those motions they will file to get rid of the case but if they got past that point um there must be some really damaging evidence in their in the marketing plan or scheme that's what i'm really thinking what happened they don't want they didn't want this case getting into a jury's hand to offer that type of money um and it's still a very tough case like i said every time you're blaming someone else for a criminal act that didn't do it Right. Um, especially corporations, very tough still. So they could have lost that trial. But I'm assuming if you're putting up that much money for this case, there's you don't they didn't want the jury to hear or see whatever it is that came out of the, the discovery process. That's All right. Gabriel Sepulveda Sanchez, a legal analyst, personal injury attorney here in Los Angeles. British Prince Andrew settling a lawsuit with a woman who had accused him of raping her when she was a teenage victim of Andrew's friend, sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Does this settlement, though, mean that Andrew is free and clear of any future investigations into Epstein's dealings or his own? Rachel Fizet is a uh, legal analyst, managing partner of Zweiback, Fizet and Coleman. Rachel, thanks for being with us. So uh, obviously this uh, settlement, which is a civil settlement, would not have anything to do with any criminal actions, if there are any, right? That's correct. The settlement, I'm sure, is careful not to make any admissions by Andrew. And what I can say he has done by settling the civil case 
is not doing damage to what could be a criminal case if there is some kind of investigation against him. There is a line in here, though, where he, you know, he doesn't admit anything, but he does acknowledge that his former friend, who now he says he regrets having a friendship with, he does uh, say that he acknowledges that Epstein trafficked countless young girls. Does that necessarily read that I knew he was doing that or now I see that he was doing that now looking back on everything? I'm sure that was a heavily negotiated term and that they wanted some kind of admission from him. And that's probably as far as he would go. Um, I think that just means that he's not going to deny that. And at this point, you know, he's not going to fight that. So I don't think that does him any harm should there be any kind of criminal investigation or anything further. But that is probably as far as he would go, and that must have satisfied Mr. Gray. Is it unusual to have a settlement in a civil action when you know that there's the potential uh, for criminal action pending? Is it unusual to settle the civil first before waiting to see what happens, if anything, on the criminal side? No, it is not unusual. In fact, it is absolutely the recommended course should you have a client that is involved in what could be both criminal, a criminal investigation and a civil case. The civil case and the discovery in a civil case, if it proceeds, basically just gives prosecutors and investigators what I would call free information because it's 100% available to them in the ongoing investigation. So as a criminal and civil lawyer myself, if I have someone in that position, I absolutely advise to settle any kind of civil case pending any other investigation going forward. So Andrew may have paid more to get the settlement prior to any kind of further investigation, but it is the most prudent course of action for him. Do you expect more to come out of this? I think it's pretty hard to say what the investigators are doing or what the U.S. Attorney's Office is continuing to do. They've been pretty mum on what they are continuing going forward. I know the Maxwell case probably incentivized further cases as they had a ton of information come forward in that case. I I don't have a feeling on that. My guess is that this probably is the end of the line, but um, I, I can't really speculate. Rachel Fazay, legal analyst, managing partner, Zweibach, Fazay, and Coleman. Coming up, California's ending its indoor mask mandate tomorrow. It seems lots of people and businesses are ready to throw away the masks, including Disneyland. And the Oscars have new hosts, three of them. We'll look into whether they can give the show the necessary ratings bump. Right now, though, President Biden says an invasion of Ukraine still possible, but he's hoping for a diplomatic solution. Simon Schuster is Time's senior investigative correspondent with a focus on international affairs, U.S. relations with Russia and Ukraine. Simon, thanks for being here. So, yeah, when we got up this morning, things did feel at least a, a little more hopeful. Yeah, that was definitely a welcome change. Um, and, I mean, I, I got to say it's kind of uh, in, in character for, for Putin to do this right now to ease up a little bit um, the uh, the rhetoric at least, and at least to say that they're pulling some of the troops back from the border. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, in the context of what the United States has been saying and doing um, in the last few days. Just at the end of last week, um, they really started, you know, raising the alarm over an imminent Russian invasion. 
you know, there were some anonymous sources speaking to uh, to my colleagues talking about the invasion is going to come any day. Uh, you know, in terms of actions over the weekend, you had the U.S. embassy uh, evacuate and basically move further west away from the capital, Kiev. And, you know, I've been reporting on Ukraine for 15 years, and that's never happened. They've never evacuated the embassy, not when there was a revolution in 2014, not when the war started in East Ukraine in 2015, um, uh, when the war was really raging. So it, it was quite a dramatic uh, push from the Americans to say the war is coming. And Vladimir Putin never really misses an opportunity to make the U.S. look uh, confused, weak, uh, and unreliable, in especially its intelligence services. So by pulling back a little bit this morning, it was like, what invasion? What are you guys talking about? I'm, I'm just I'm just standing here. Right? OK, so so let's say and we should point out uh, that, as you know, uh, both the President Biden and I believe it was uh, NATO this morning are saying they cannot as yet confirm uh, right. that that any pullback has actually uh, happened. But let's for the moment uh, give Mr. Putin the, the benefit of the doubt, and they are pulling back. And let's even say, we'll go further, that there isn't uh, an invasion. So what does Putin walk away with then? If his intent was to uh, establish a sphere of influence or to kind of go back to the old days when there was a USSR uh, and have that kind of sphere, sphere of influence, does he walk away with that? I think he's got already a couple things in his pocket that, that would allow him a face-saving uh, off-ramp, right, to, to de-escalate even now. I don't think he's going to do that, but what he can, what he can point to is today uh, in, in Moscow, he met with uh, the new chancellor of Germany, uh, Olaf Scholz, um, and the statements that Scholz made coming out of that meeting were new. I mean, he was talking about, uh, you know, as a major uh, NATO ally saying uh, look, we really don't have much of an intention to accept Ukraine into the NATO alliance. Maybe we should just go ahead and say that formally in order to uh, put uh, to reduce the tensions and, and put Putin at ease a little bit. Now, I, I can't recall a NATO leader so openly um, in, in after bilateral talks with Putin taking a position like that. And that position is now all over the op-ed pages of U.S. newspapers. It's being discussed. So the, the idea uh, that, you know, we should essentially say Ukraine is not going to join NATO, as the Western alliance should say that, that's now, he's mainstreamed that idea, Putin has. Um, as a result of this standoff, at, at least he's gotten that much. And I think that's already a, a rhetorical win. I don't think that's enough to make him back down completely. He's, I think he's going to continue kind of ramping up. So he takes a step back and then brings the troops back to the border and so on until he can really uh, squeeze as much as he can out of the West. It's still a no-go for us, though. I mean, this White House is not going to say that, even if the German chancellor is. Right. But I, I think divisions within the NATO alliance um, are already a, a goal, a strategic goal for, for uh, Putin. Um, I, I don't know. You're, you're right, though, that the United States is not giving much ground on that. Um, Secretary of State Blinken has been pretty clear that the open door policy of NATO stands. They're not going to compromise on that. But but the fact that, you know, these major uh, European countries are already um, kind of sh showing some daylight between themselves and the United States on that question is, is, a, is a good sign for Putin, something that I think he can take home to his um, to his voters, that he can trumpet on his propaganda channels as as a, a sign that um, 
the, the West is bending, at least, to his demands. Simon Schuster, Times senior investigative correspondent, focused on international affairs, U.S. relations, Russia and Ukraine. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. If you notice avocado and guac prices going up at the store, you can blame a scary phone call. U.S. has suspended the avocado imports from Mexico. Avocados from Mexico. The jingle. Oh, yeah. Uh, because a U.S. plant inspector there got a threatening phone call. Wait, do that again. Avocados from Mexico. Yeah, we can probably pull it. <laughs> yeah. And we yeah. run the ads sometimes. So. <laughs> well, this could put a, a lot of strain on growers here in California where this now is Phil Lampert. Retail analyst and supermarket guru who runs supermarketguru.com. Phil, thanks for being back with us. So uh, this is for, for people who love their guacamole. This is like really bad news. Why is it happening? Well, it's bad news for a variety of reasons. Keep in mind that, yes, because of that hopefully crank call uh, that went to that inspector, the U.S. has sealed imports from Mexico to the U.S. Now, that's not totally bad because we grow a lot of avocados in California, Florida. We import them from Chile, from Peru. Uh, But our problem has been all about the weather, especially here in California, because the avocado crop this past year has been smaller fruit and less. Um, So we're really going to see more price increases. Going into the Super Bowl, guacamole was up about 17 percent. Avocados was up about 11 percent. And we anticipate that both of those are going to go up substantially if we can find avocados. Yeah. Can we make up, do we think, most of the, uh, you know, shortage or do we just uh, get partially there and then prices are going to go up no matter what? Well, the good part of it is the weather. Um, uh, Unlike climate change weather, we're coming into the spring season here in California, in Florida, so the crops are more pervasive. During the winter months, about 99% of all avocados do come from Mexico that are exported to, to the U.S. Um, so that's the, that's the light that we don't know, whether or not we're going to see a better crop this spring, this summer here in California. But in the short term, let's not forget um, that supplies are going to run out in supermarkets uh, before this ban is lifted. And there is going to be probably a couple weeks where it's going to be tough going. I was going to say, I mean, is there any projection on how long the ban's likely to be in effect? No, and and it's because we really don't know what that call was about. Uh, We don't know if somebody threatened somebody's life, uh, threatened their family's life. We've seen this before in limes, for example, uh, going back, oh, I want to say about six, seven years ago when the price of limes nearly quadrupled. Well, it was really the drug cartel in Mexico that was blocking limes from being exported to the U.S. because they own a lot of the lime fields. Uh, So they were jacking up the price. So until we know how serious this is and who's really behind it, it's really rough to say. And it's been a little bit since this call. So why haven't we figured out more? Why haven't they said more? We've got the inspectors, what, to make sure nothing bad gets in and, and taints the crop or whatever? I don't I don't think it's about the crop. I think that it's just um, a personal matter and that, 
you know, presumably, and maybe I'm watching too much of Queen of the South on TV. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, but maybe, you know, they just threatened the person's life um, and, and tried to say, you know, we want to export more. We want to raise the price. We just don't know. And with that, you know, the only advice that I can give to people who love avocados and love guacamole is stock up. Make sure you're storing them properly. Uh, make sure you're making the guacamole. Uh, freeze it if you if you have to, if, you, if you're one of these guacamole fanatics. Uh, but we're going to see it both at the retail and the food service level. So when you go to that Mexican restaurant or other restaurants that serve guacamole, don't be surprised if the portions are a little smaller um, or in some cases they even eliminate it off the menu. Is this just like pass avocados or others? Because there are other types of avocados, even though people don't realize that there are. Correct. Uh, no, this is all avocados from Mexico. Um, now, there are other avocados, for example, from California. There is um, an avocado from Peru, which is called Pro Haas. Um, so, so that's not affected. But any avocado from Mexico, regardless of the variety, are what we're talking about. All right. Phil Lempert, uh, retail analyst, supermarket guru, supermarketguru.com. Well, California's indoor mask mandate disappears at midnight, that is, unless you happen to be in L.A. or Santa Clara counties. Even Disneyland says no more masks. The Coachella and Stagecoach festivals also say no to the masks. Masks will remain, though, in schools for at least the next couple of weeks. So what should people do? What do we expect them to do? Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, UC Davis Health. So up there, Dr. Uh, Yolo or Sacramento counties, masks not going to be required. Um, what are you going to do? I'm going to wear a mask. Um, they work well and I'm comfortable wearing them and I don't want to get COVID. So I still think it's prudent for individuals to make up their own minds and decide to wear masks if they want to be, be protected. So the state, places like Disneyland acting in too much haste? You know, the beauty of the current situation we're in now is that Previously, it was more of a public health issue in terms of people getting sick and overwhelming hospitals and healthcare resources. And now with this Omicron surge decreasing, we're at about one-sixth the peak of the Omicron surge right now. Um, we don't have those concerns, and people can take responsibility now for their own health by um, choosing, for example, to use an N95 mask, since they're more widely available. Those do an excellent job of protecting yeah. So let's talk to those people for a second who are still going to be super concerned, especially, uh, you know, come tomorrow or the next couple of days when they go somewhere and they look around and there's going to be a whole bunch of people not wearing masks. So need they be fearful if they've got their N95 or KN95 strapped to their face and they're in the supermarket or they're in the elevator with unmasked people? I mean, that's a lot of protection. This is almost as good as it gets what you're breathing through. Yeah, so the CDC just released a study last week that showed people who are wearing the N95s or KN95s had 83% decreased risk of getting infected. Now, that's not the 95% that you would expect, but the 95% would be people who are fit tested and are wearing them properly. So 83% is still pretty good. I know that when I wear it, you know, I've been fit tested. I know exactly how to wear it. I do a seal check to make sure that the fit is good. I don't have facial hair, which can interfere with the N95 protection. Um, so I do expect at least 95% protection. So I feel very comfortable being around other people. In fact, 
you know, with the N95, as part of my job, I go and see patients with COVID. I go into the room. So, so I know that there's a risk from those patients. So I feel very comfortable wearing an N95. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're in a, a clearly a, an environment where you're exposed to very large uh, viral loads, right? Uh, people who are sick and who are coughing and sneezing and maybe all over you. For the average uh, person, a chance encounter perhaps in an elevator or uh, on an airplane, if they're wearing a, a, even a KN95 that's not perfectly fitted and maybe they don't really know how to wear it, but it's covering their mouth and nose, that's still, as you mentioned, that's still pretty good, right? Yeah, they're still probably going to get at least 80% reduction. And then if they're fully vaccinated and boosted, that'll uh, provide additional protection. And if they're around people who aren't highly contagious, such as those who are appear well, and hopefully most people in public don't have fevers and aren't coughing up a storm, well, you're, you'll take a wide berth of them, right? So for most of those encounters, you have a low risk. And plus, many of these encounters are very brief, right? You're walking by somebody or, or, or just by them with, with them for less than a minute or so. So those are going to be relatively low risk encounters. So we're down to risk assessments time again, right? And I guess in a much better place than we were months ago, but we've still got different groups of people who are doing totally different things. There's people who've been eating in restaurants and going to bars or going to sports games or concerts pretty much the whole time. And then there's still people who haven't gone to dine inside in months and months and months. So what do you say to that second group? I mean, do what you're comfortable with, obviously, but you should probably get out at least at some point. Things are a little yeah. bit better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people need to take it, you know, as the situation occurs. So I can tell you personally that my wife and I, we went out to dinner during um, the fall. But then when Omicron came, I felt very uncomfortable. And in fact, we canceled our Valentine's Day dinner reservations because we just weren't comfortable being inside unmasked for a prolonged period of time. So it just depends. We're still having significant activity, um, even though we are down from the Omicron surge. But I would think within the next month or two, we're going to get back to pre-surge levels and people can can reassess the situation and then be out and about more. Yeah. yeah. It, Do you expect to be comfortable relatively soon? Maybe give it a month or further into spring. I mean, is that when you're eating inside? Yeah, the model suggests that we're going to be below what we were at the Delta surge in July and August. We're going to be below that in about a month or so. And I think once we're below that, that'll be my signal that I'll be more comfortable um, being more relaxed. And right now, you know, being with friends and family, if they're fully vaccinated, you know, and, and they're comfortable not being masked in small groups, you know, that's the kind of people that I've been socializing with. So do you already know the restaurant you're going to head to? <laughs> I know. He's got reservations yeah. a month from now. He's like, I'm ready yeah. to go, man. I, I, I don't, but I'll, I'll tell you who's in charge of that. I'll ask my wife. <laughs> okay. Good answer. Um, you know, we got to ask because the, the, the Super Bowl was here and we saw a whole bunch of maskless people. What do you think people made of that watching that on TV? Because now we've got two counties that are still going to be doing masks and we had, you know, tens of thousands of people without them. And in terms of people thinking, you know what? I'm just going to take this thing off and never put it back on because look at all these people. Yeah, that was interesting to watch. I mean, technically, you're you're indoors at the stadium, right? But it's a huge volume of air there. And so really, the, the risk isn't the same as if you're indoors in a smaller venue, such as a 
somebody's living room and all. So there's the, the air exchange is high, the um, air volume is large. And so I think the risk of infection is basically due to people who you're immediately next to, the people you're sitting next to. So I'm hoping that there's not a bump related to people going to the Super Bowl and being largely unmasked. But it, it was interesting to look at that. I am curious because there are uh, some countries in, in Western Europe that are starting to think very seriously about dropping the so-called you know vaccine passport that you don't need to to perhaps prove. I think the UK, in fact, uh, you won't have to prove that you're vaccinated to go into a restaurant. When do we get to that point here? You know, if you have a large proportion of the population that's at least partially immune from prior vaccination or infection, then if you do get those breakthrough infections, they're going to be relatively mild and they're not likely going to result in hospitalization or death. That's when you can do that because we just don't want to see what we saw earlier in the pandemic where hospitals and healthcare systems were overwhelmed with admissions in New York City and in India and Iran. Um, these areas just you know, couldn't, couldn't take care of patients and people died because of that. We can't have that. But if we have enough partial immunity, that's when you can stop with the mandates for the vaccine passports. And the, similarly with the masks where people can take responsibility for their own health. Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, UC Davis Health. Doctor, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A wrongful death lawsuit filed by the husband and son of cinematographer Helena Hutchins against Alec Baldwin. Other crew members on the movie Rust. The sets there alleges several industry standards were violated. When Hutchins was killed in October, a gun held by Baldwin fired a live round on the set. Now, the film production company denies the allegations. The producers say they are conducting an internal review of their procedures even though they weren't uh, aware of any official complaints. And we're waiting to hear from uh, Helena Hutchinson's husband and son's attorney, Brian Panish. And while we try to get him on the uh, line, um, we should point out that there is also an ongoing uh, criminal investigation uh, that's being conducted. And that's been very quiet, which yeah. they should be, really. Right. Uh, and we don't know. There was that the initial press conference where they said, basically, the info we got out of that was kind of a little bit of a play-by-play -play of, of what happened. And then this idea that, you know what, there was a lot of mixing going on is what it looks like in terms of rounds. Hundreds of rounds were taken, and they say it was a mix of, of blanks and then dummies and then live rounds, which, of course, that is one glaring thing that should not be happening. Right. And and uh, from what I've read uh, thus far of this uh, civil lawsuit, and, and when we get uh, hopefully Brian, the attorney, uh, on the line, he can verify this. But from what I understand is one of the allegations being made in the civil suit is that the gun that uh, Alec Baldwin was holding, they were doing a rehearsal in effect. It wasn't the actual shooting of the, of the scene. Uh, and apparently for that portion... They were supposed to, according to the lawsuit, be using a a dummy uh, gun, something made out of, you know, uh, either plastic or rubber, which couldn't uh, shoot. I think we have Brian on the phone. Brian Panish, is that you? Yes, it is. You are. So I was just, uh, as we were waiting for you, I was just saying what I think I believe, and you could correct me, is in your lawsuit, the civil suit, is one of the allegations that the gun that Mr. Baldwin was holding that went off because it wasn't the actual shooting of the of the scene, it was a rehearsal uh, run through that it should have been like a rubber gun that couldn't have gone off. Is that correct? 
Well, that that's one of the numerous violations of the industry standards. But more importantly, if you're just doing a, a, a run through, why would you have any bullets in the gun, live or not live? And that again, that is another violation. There's pointing the gun at someone when you don't know if it's clear. Not getting the gun directly from the armor. Not having protective uh, plexiglass for shielding. And, you know, everyone knows you don't point a gun at somebody. First of all, you never point a gun at someone unless you're intending to kill them. And, uh, and number two, you certainly wouldn't point it whether you, when you don't know whether it's loaded or not or whether there's live ammunition. It's just reckless to do that, and that's what happened. Is Alec Baldwin named because, you know, he's the actor, he was holding the gun when it fired, he should have checked, even though there were other people that also should have checked, or because he, you know, was a producer, he was one of the top people on this movie, and, and the buck kind of stops with him. Number one, he's the one that got, had the gun in his hand when she was shot and killed. Number two, as a producer, he has responsibility with others for safety on the set. And you've seen the, the emails and showing there's concern about safety. The armor may not have been doing her job. It was never checked. And that was all reckless, and he shot her. So, obviously, he has substantial liability. But for Alec Baldwin pulling the trigger, which was not part of what he was supposed to do, that was reckless. We wouldn't be here. And a, and a husband and son wouldn't have lost a precious person to them. I'm curious if you know, uh, a week or two ago, there was a news story about, and this is, I, I believe, part of the criminal investigation that's ongoing. They subpoenaed uh, Mr. Baldwin's uh, cell phone. Do you have any idea what that would be about? Oh, I'm sure they want to get all the messages, what was going on and what he knew and what he was saying to people after the fact. And they had to go get, he didn't voluntarily turn it over. They had to go to get a subpoena issued in New York. They served the subpoena. And I don't know whether he's turned over the records or not, but he's obviously said he's going to fully cooperate. So I don't know why he wouldn't just hand over the records and then force him to give him a subpoena. It's Brian Panish there. He's the attorney for Helena Hutchins' husband and son. Brian, thanks. Well, just as people were getting used to an Oscars show with no host. Changed everything. Changed everything around. The Academy now triples the change it's making. The show is getting three hosts, all women. Regina Hall, Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, all host the Academy Awards for the first time. Mark Malkin, Variety's senior editor, host of the Just for Variety podcast, first to break the story. So uh, they're trying to make some moves. How has it been received so far? I think with anything when it comes to the Oscars and the Academy, it's all this very wait and see. It's so new. I think obviously everyone knew that something different was going to come about. The Academy has been under pressure to try to change up the show to bring in ratings and make it more exciting. So I think people are hopeful, but they just don't know yet. I, if if I can, Mike, can I steal your line from going into the break? Oh, yes. Yeah. So what, what Mike said, if I don't know if you heard it. Uh, is I did. Head, you did. So, so <laughs> okay. So will they get more than three viewers? You know, that is the big question. And if you had the answer, guess what? You would make a lot of more money probably <laughs> than you're making in radio. Because no one could figure out what the formula is to get more ratings. Of course, a lot of people are talking about bigger blockbuster movies being acknowledged by the Academy. Obviously, the big one this year was Spider-Man No Way Home. People were really hoping to see that in the best picture category. It is not there. 
So one of the things they're doing is they're having a Twitter vote. People on Twitter can vote for their favorite movie. It doesn't have to be a movie that's been nominated. This is going to be really interesting to see how they tally the votes because talk about stuff in the ballot box. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a bunch of bots just voting for whatever. Someone can program a thousand billion votes for Spider-Man. But also, like, okay, two ways, right? Oh, fun idea. Yes, let's do a Twitter poll. Also, no, if you wanted Spider-Man, and maybe people would actually enjoy this if you had nominated Spider-Man. Well, that that obviously is the big thing. Well, listen, why did you nominate Spider-Man to begin with? They didn't because the Academy has a reputation for not going after sort of the big popcorn, popular box office crazy movies. And that has been, you know, a big argument that, you know, you've got to open up the Oscars to make it more, you know, make it more of a celebration of movie going and general movie going than just specific more art house films. I mean, have we gotten, and we have this kind of discussion, I know every time in recent years, the Oscars rolls around, but are we really now maybe at the point where, except for the people who work in the industry, it's kind of irrelevant. Do most people really care anymore about the Oscars? I mean, probably half the movies that have been nominated, people didn't even see this year, maybe more than half. You know, it's funny. We do, we, you know, a lot of times you say, you know what, the general public, they don't care about the Oscars. They're not watching. They still get some nice numbers. And also, guess what everyone's talking about today? Look who's hosting the Oscars. Whether you care (laughs) about the Oscars or not, you're talking about it. My mom was calling me going, what's the scoop? What's happening with the Oscars? My mom is not running out to see the power of the dog. I can tell you that. Is it also just like a network TV thing that, you know, not that many people are going to remember or even watch on a Sunday night anymore in general? Well, that, you know, there has been a lot of people pushing for the Oscars to also be broadcast on a streamer in a more, you know, uh, contemporary way, as they say, you know, get it on a streamer, get it on a social media platform. Um, But ABC makes a lot a lot of money. The Academy makes a lot of money doing it on network television. I do think eventually they will have to come up with some solution where other uh, social media platforms or apps are involved. There's just, there's no way around that. And I think it eventually will happen. Do you know how they came up with these three? From what we understand is, you know, they were out to a bunch of different people. You know, they really wanted to see the interest. Now, what we have to remember, the one thing you always hear when you say, oh, does Buffalo want to be an Oscar host? The, the next thing is, well, it's such a thankless job. It is, everyone talks about how prestigious it is. It's very hard to get someone to agree to host the Oscars because even as soon as it's announced who's hosting the Oscars, they are getting bashed on social media. Obviously, I think the the hate is a lot louder than than the likes. But, you know, I think they really looked at a range of different people. And, you know, this is saying something about the Academy pushing for diversity. It is three women, three powerful women, three women with very strong voices, different backgrounds. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, could they pull it off? Could they... As they say, save the Oscars. Ooh, yeah, that's the thing, right? Because you're going to draw some people in for curiosity or because they like them or maybe they just watch the Oscars every year. But is this also like a delayed effect? If these three smash it out of the park, the bits are great. It's a wonderful show. It doesn't go six hours. Uh, does that get people <laughs> to tune in 
next year? You know, I think probably you're going to be calling me next year when the host for next year <laughs> announced. To do this and we're going to have, we literally, I mean, we have, we have the same conversations every year. What could save the Oscars? What could save the Oscars? And sometimes it just takes one bit that just goes so viral that it's like, oh my God, they saved the Oscars. But again, if we could predict any of this, we'd be a lot richer than we are right now. And if these three don't work, so is the headline next year, Oscar returns to a single host. Or maybe 15 hosts. <laughs> yeah, to have them all traded off. By the, by the way, this isn't the first time the Oscars have had multiple hosts. They've done this in the past. They haven't had three very strong women as the hosts. But, you know, the Oscars throughout the years, they've, tr they've tried all different things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they fail, but it's guaranteed every year we will have the Oscars. Yeah, and well, then people go, oh, well, we need better movies. Well, the movies are good. It's just nobody went to the theaters to see them. So, I mean, what are you going to no, do with no, that? But you know what the Oscar show needs is, is better writing, to be quite serious. Uh, I mean, the, the, sometimes it might feel like we want to watch the yeah, thing. They had really good performers often hosting, whether it was one or two, or maybe in this case, three, but often the material is just awful for, for a town that prides itself on being creative. Well, you know, the, the issue there also is network television. It's very hard to push those envelopes. I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, obviously Wanda Sykes and Amy Schuster have, big experience when it comes to stand-up comedy and playing off the crowd and feeding off the crowd. Wanda Sykes, I think, and I've been saying this since we broke the story yesterday, she has that smart sort of edge where she's going to take, you know, she's going to, she's going to give some zingers and I think she will play off the crowd. And then it's how far they can push the envelope on network television. And that's always an issue. Mark Malkin, Variety's senior editor, hosts the Just for Variety podcast. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow after the parade. Yeah, and the, but there are only, uh, for this show, there's only two of us, not yeah. three. We're, we're well, knocking it out of the park. Is that it? Yeah. So you're, Okay. All right. So we're told. <laughs> yeah. By ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back tomorrow.